How are you all? Three of you are doing okay. That's good. <laughs> I don't think I heard an amen to that. So. I draw your attention to verse 16 of chapter 3. Um, I, I would really like to spend a big chunk of time today on 16 through 23 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is bringing to a conclusion um, his discussion about the divisions, uh, the factions, the schisms, whatever particular word uh, you can, because they're all different, different words that are used. And he said that you have misunderstood the power and wisdom that's in the message of Christ crucified. That doesn't divide, that unites. And these individuals, Paul, Paul, Cephas, etc., they serve the Master. They serve the Lord. You don't elevate them, you elevate Christ. They are but servants to accomplish his purposes. So in this section, uh, beginning again, I'm going to pick up right at verse 16. He says something that um, I'm sure you've heard before, but because uh, it's common part of, of our of teaching, and correctly so. But I want you to think of what this would have sounded like to a person in the first century, living in, living in this cosmopolitan city of, of Corinth. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, the you there is plural, and the context of everything he's been, he has been discussing is the church. So where 1 Corinthians chapter 6 teaches that we individually are the temple of God, this passage teaches that you corporately, the church, are the temple of God. You follow that distinction? I mean, it applies both corporately to the body as well as corporately to the individual person. Corporately to the body of Christ, the church, and individually. That's, we'll come across that in chapter 6. But what's the importance of that? You are, and when he, he does this, this is a literary device that he uses a lot. When he introduces a rhetorical question, a question like, do you not know? What that means, that construction means he has taught them that. So this isn't something brand new he's telling them. This is kind of like a review lesson. Do you not know? That you are the temple. It's like when we say to our children when they're small, don't you know, and you're asking them a question, but don't you know that you're not supposed to touch that burner? Well, how many times did you tell them not to touch the burner? And that you just say it that way. Don't you know you're not supposed to touch that burner? And it's like what Paul is saying, I taught you this. So it's like a reminder that you are the temple and that the Holy Spirit indwells you. Now let's let's think about that for a minute. Let's and by the way, the word for uh, I don't always do this, but I think this is kind of uh, interesting. The word there for temple in, in Greek is naos, and what that means is the inner sanctuary. You know what I mean by it? Isn't the, it isn't the big building. It isn't the whole structure. It's the, the, the Greek word for the inner sanctuary. 
of a temple. Do you understand the difference? Is it just a big structure and the, you know, the, 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 the whole plateau that it sits on and all the buildings that were part of it? It's the inner sanctuary. That's what you are. Does that make sense? Okay. I just think that's, a, that's an interesting nuance of the particular word that he's chosen here. But so let's stop here a minute. Let's think about this. Why is that such an important truth? Why remind him of that? Andrew? Just a clarifying question. Is, oh, that, is that referring to then kind of what was in the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, like where God dwelt? Is that what Naos means? Okay, you're asking it as a question, and you're actually answering part of the question I was putting on the table. I think it is. Uh, very important for them to understand themselves. You are the new temple of God. Now, I'm assuming he did this because you certainly have somewhat of a background in this because of the Old Testament. You know that the temple in Jerusalem was the most important center of the Jewish faith. That's you know, where sacrifices were held. That's where the law was taught. I mean, you know, all that means. That was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. So Paul is saying, and let me put it in the whole sweep of what God's doing. Now that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has, uh, has occurred, he's ascended back to the Father. The Spirit has come. You are the new temple. Not the same purposes, not the same functions, not the same responsibilities, but you are the new temple. Isn't that a profound thought for them to process and think about? And he's writing and and speaking primarily to Gentiles, although obviously we do know some of the people in the church uh, at Corinth were Jewish people. But this this is more broadly speaking for every person at any time who puts their faith in Christ. And as a member of the body, you are the temple of God. You're the new temple. And where God's presence was manifested in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the Naas, the inner sanctuary, now you manifest that glory as well, because the Spirit indwells you. And so here again, it seems to me, it brings to an even fuller and richer meaning a verse like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which we'll study, we're going in 2014 or something, that um, he says, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You are to reflect, you are to manifest, you are to exhibit God's glory. Where God's glory was manifested on Temple Mount in, uh, in the inner sanctuary by that Shekinah cloud, that Shekinah glory, you are now the glory of God. Isn't that profound to start thinking that way? And that is what he is challenging them to do. And remember, everything we've read so far, I'm going to read a lot more. This is a church that's really struggling with a lot of issues, a lot of sin, a lot of disobedience. But he still says, you're the temple. Corporate, the body of Christ, the church. That's right. He will talk individually. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But in chapter six, where he speaks individually, you, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So two, it's two levels, 
of application. You, plural, the corporate body, are the temple, and then later on, you individually are the temple. He's saying like all you guys. Correct. Mm -hmm. Because collectively, you are the body of Christ, and that you are you are the new temple. What? Okay, and Andrew, he really he jumped ahead, but it was great. It was a great comment. Why is this valuable for them? How would this, how would this affect them? What, what do you think Paul's intended result is for teaching them this? How is this to affect them? How is this to change them? How is this to, I'm, I'm trying to prod your thinking. Why would he tell them this? Well, they were, they were not single-minded to begin with when he went to them. They believed in, or they they worshipped or honored others. Well, sure. Before that's right. That's what he's trying to do is bring them to one. Okay, unity and a unified focus on Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and you now. This is your new position. This is your. This is the new truth about who you are. else, Andrew? Well, uh, previously, like going down that same road, the the inner sanctuary was only allowed, the, the priests were the only ones allowed in, the curtain divided everybody else from God, and then this removes that curtain and gives us direct access. Excellent. He's got two stars already. Combining a thought here that's in one of Peter's epistles with a, a strong application of what he's teaching here, and this is in effect what Andrew just said: No need. We are the new temple. No need for a mediator, a priest, the priesthood of the believer. Which means now you have direct, open access to God. Indeed, 24-7, direct open access to God. Um, and uh, we can keep talking about this, but I alluded to this earlier, but that we now reflect the glory of God. Uh, that is partially, again, there are other applications of something like this. But... Um, Think for a moment, if you were a Corinthian, okay, and you've come, you've come to faith in God, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you understand all of that, but you still live here. This is Corinth, and you know, we looked at this the very first day we started. And if you, if you just look around, and if, if there are other of these available, show even a larger metropolitan area, you can see several temples on this schematic of what the city of Corinth looked like at the time of Paul. 
And you see some of these are all dedicated to different Greco-Roman gods. So you grew up, you grew up in a city where there were temples everywhere. Now you've come to understand that those temples are to false gods. But Paul is saying, it's almost like he's saying, okay, here we are. I'm, I'm, let's pretend that he would say so. I'm making this up. But he's in the Agora, he's in the marketplace. And he says, look over there at the temple of Apollos. That's a false temple. That's dedicated to a false god. But do you understand, now that you're in Christ, you are the new temple of God. You don't need a building like that anymore. You don't need sacrifices anymore. You don't need priests anymore. You don't need a ritual and a liturgy that you have to go through to please God. You don't have to do any of that. You are the temple. You don't need to make any more sacrifices because Christ made all the sacrifices done. And you now have, and this is one of the arguments in the book of Hebrews, you now have direct 24-7 access to God. As a body, you can come together and immediately talk to God. And your worship and your devotion and your singing and all that is a part of that when you gather is directly going to God. You're not going through a priest or through a mediator to accomplish this. You're directly. You are the new temple of God. It's a good object lesson. That's what I mean, because for them, they are not necessarily thinking of the temple in Jerusalem. They may, because Paul perhaps taught them that, and there are some Jews in the church that may or may not have ever been to the temple. But their context isn't a memory of or an exposure to the grand temple and temple mount in Jerusalem. It's the temples that are all around them which they've learned and they understand and they believe. False God, don't believe it. But Paul, I'm sure, when he says, do you not know that you're the temple of God? It, it, as I said, that's a literary device. Remember when I taught you that? And I'm, I am just convinced thoroughly that he would have pointed out and said, they're the temples of the false worship now in Corinth. But don't you know now that you're in Christ, you are the temple. And all that applies, total access to God, that's all applies to you. That's what I mean, I, I, about the third time I've used it, this is really profound truth for them to process. For them to really, 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 truly understand that they are a part of a whole new order of things. Just as you are. Because this applies to you and to me. We are the new temple of the living God. That's a major part of the ending chapters of the book of Hebrews. And yeah. all that's involved with that. To get to that worthy aspect, <clears throat> it's not we who are worthy, it's Christ who is worthy, right? I mean, and that's why we are worthy. It's only through him. Through him, because of him, exactly. Yeah, it's not, so people don't have to say, well, I, I'm not really holy, I'm not that holy, you know, I mean, using the secular thinking and as opposed to the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ. That's right. Who we are in Christ, our position in Christ. If I may, does, Please. Does, does that fall into a thought of, okay, you're really not as trustworthy, or, or you don't trust what, what uh, you know, the Bible's saying, you're, here you are, you're a temple of God, and you know that you're going to sin every day. I, I just have a hard time getting a grasp on it's it's the cycle of sinning every day, but 
if we're a temple of God, we shouldn't sin, should we? I mean, if we have Christ in us, obviously we go and sin, so it doesn't it draw a conclusion that, well, you're not letting the Spirit work through you, you don't trust Him enough, you don't... That's just a, that's a frustrating struggle, knowing that I must sin every day. And knowing that if I am a temple of God, I shouldn't be doing any of that. So I fail. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I want to remind you of something. <laughs> I know what you're saying. A great question. <laughs> Being, well, I have it right here, so I'll just put it here. The, the declaration that you are the temple of God is part of your position in Christ. It's like what we studied uh, last year sometime whenever we were in Romans 6. It's like what's in Romans. 6, 1 through 14. That is our position. And nothing can shake that. Nothing can change that. Because of the finished work of Christ and, and, and all of that finished work, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension, that you have applied to your life by faith. You are holy, you are righteous in his eyes. That's how Paul starts the book of Corinthians. Some of the most carnal people in the early church. He says, you are saints by calling him God. And nothing can shake you from that position. And they're out there. I mean, they're doing some of those carnal things you can imagine. But Paul keeps bringing them back because the motivation is in your practice and living, you keep going, here's who I am. Now I am starting to narrow the gap between what I am in Christ and how I'm living. I'm starting to narrow that gap. How long does it take for you to narrow the gap? The rest of your life. Because you're learning, you're learning that dependence, you're learning that who I am in Christ now is to define and to determine my walk, my daily uh, uh, living. And that this is an event that's solid, unshakable, and will never change. This is a process. And what God wants you to do is, because it's how he's so patiently allowed him to look, I understand where you are. And I understand your struggle. But keep remembering who you are. Because my son did all this. You can do anything to get this. But you applied it by faith. So let's start to narrow the gap between these two. And um, it is frustrating. But I want to remind you something as well that is absolutely true. Before you started to walk with Christ, some of the things that you do and the things you see didn't bother you. But now it bothers you. Now you're sensitive to it. Now things that are going on in your thought life, that bothers you. Good. That's good. The struggles that you have with motivations and attitudes didn't bother you. Now it bothers you good. It's like when you, you know, I, I've walked with the Lord since 1972. And some of the major things that I was wrestling with, I'm not wrestling with those anything anymore. But I am still, I mean, every day I wrestle with all kinds of attitudes and motivations. When I zoomed off 13th Street onto I-80 and I saw this parking lot and big, and I just said, 
Okay, Lord, I left four minutes later than I usually do, and this is what you have for me. <laughs> and I just, I, I, right there, and I'm not kidding you, I was about ready to blow it. And I just said, okay, Lord, you have to show me what to do, because I, I can't, I mean, the car's all around, I can't call. So it was just like, right, right there, I, or a 75, so I just zipped up 75, and I just, and I just said, Lord, you have to get me there. I can't get in touch with these guys, I just can't, I can't stop, and... And it was just, I said, I, I tried to really relax. And I'm going to tell you, I wish I could tell you, every single time, that's how I respond. I don't. You know, Terry, that used to come and we haven't seen him for a while. He's coming back. He said about you, he know, didn't he know you one year ago? He said, you're not even the same guy now. Mm. So yeah. you are making progress. You know, it is a process. And, and you probably did things before, like I did, that we got callous too, you know, mm -hmm. and so we just, you know, it was okay, <laughs> you know, but now it bothered you, you know, and it bothered me too, and yes. probably bothered everyone yes. that, that want to uh, know the Lord. And it is, it, it, I believe we have to constantly and continually remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. I mean, just constantly remind yourself of that. And that what the Lord is doing in your life is he's transforming you. I, as I just put it, he is narrowing that gap between our position and our practice. But still, it's still pretty wide, but it's not as wide as it used to be. And that, that is an excuse, but that's why these things, things bother me now never bothered me before. It's like, did you ever, you know, you get out of the shower and there's a hair on your tongue? Does that drive you nuts? Do you ever do that? Of course, some of you don't have any hair, so you don't have to worry about that. But if you still have hair, and it's just, you know, it bothers you, and you just, it's like the all, I've got to get rid of the hair in my you know, mouth. Right? You have a, you know, you've, you've had a steak or something like that, and when you've got a little tiny piece of meat, and you just, your tongue, you cannot get that thing out. It becomes the obsession. Yeah. I can't wait to hang home and get some dental floss, to, you know, that kind of thing. And that is, that is how we respond to the things that are displeasing to the Lord, it really starts to bother us. And what God is saying to us, remember who you are in Christ. And I love you and I'm patient and I'm forbearing. Talk to me about it. Lord, I'm sorry, I should have never done that. Help me, help me to start to get victory over this. And slowly and methodically, patiently, you start to see that happen. Did I hear in our Bible study at some point, maybe a couple of years ago, that the Holy Spirit is the one that can make us feel guilty? He is. Mm -hmm. About mm -hmm. things that we may, mm -hmm. we stumble. Mm -hmm. Guilt is a positive thing that God, the Spirit, uses. But then if you talk to the Lord and you talk to him, Lord, I shouldn't have done that, and you still feel guilty, that guilt is not of the Spirit. You have dealt with it. God, it's done. Don't forget it. Pick yourself up and get going. I'm with you. Understand. Forgive. No problem. Let's get going. And I, I mean, I've worked with guys, particularly because I've mostly worked with men, but who they're just overwhelmed by the burden of guilt for things they did. And if they've come to Christ and clear it with Christ, it's over. Don't let that guilt bear you down. Don't let it wear you down. Don't let it pound you into the ground. That's a false guilt, and that is a guilt that sometimes the evil one can really use. 
And I, so it's, there is a positive dimension to guilt, which brings us to, okay, I've got to deal with this. But once you've dealt with it, it's over. And any guilt after that, that is not of God's spirit. And again, is some of the, we, that's some of the things we have to learn and remember and focus on as we're growing in our, in our dependence on, on God. So I, verse 16 is, is a very, very, very important reminder of position, positional truth. And then look at the next verse. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. So somebody makes war on the church, God's going to deal with them. Now, you say, well, just a minute. In the early church, there are hundreds, indeed thousands of martyrs. Churches were burned and destroyed by the Roman legions. Um, Roman Empire still around? Roman Caesars still around? The legions of Rome tramping over the Middle East? What's the answer to that? No. Now today in Egypt, churches are being torched. There's an increasing number of martyrs in the Middle East right now. This verse tells us God will resolve that. God's going to take care of that. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what's going to happen. And it may not be tomorrow, but God's going to deal that. You cannot attack the church of God with impunity. It is the body of Christ. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the new temple of the living God. You cannot attack and destroy the church with impunity. That's what this is telling us. With all of its imperfection, with all of its messiness, you cannot destroy the church. You know what's so interesting about Paul is that he was kind of that aggressor. He knew that change needed to be made. And he seen wrong religion and practices that have taken place. And he did, I mean, he was empowered by, you know, by God alone, just to yes. go ahead and go and make those changes. Yes. And in this day and age, I, mean, I don't, I don't think we're in a position to necessarily do that to maybe call out other religions and try to help people through faith. Especially, I, I see a lot of stuff like Islam and you know, third world countries and all this stuff that, that takes place. But you know, having a, a gentleman like Paul, you know, in this day and age, I don't know how he'd be per- perceived. You know, very <laughs> on the aggressor type. And that, that's why I was, you know, kind of thinking about. Who was the, the, this guy Paul? You know, as how he would relate to this day and age, it'd be really hard for him, I would think, because now he had to be so politically correct. But he did you know, such a phenomenal job changing everything. Obviously, that's my quick two cents. Sorry. I've thought a lot about that. I really have. That's why I'm mulling over how I want to respond, or even if it's necessary to respond. Because, uh, you know, another way of framing the question you just, and comments really that you were just uh, uh, sharing, which are good ones, it, it'd be interesting. Do, it, it's, it's, it's hypothetical, it's more rhetorical than anything else. Do we need another Paul today? You know, do we really need, I mean, obviously Paul is an apostle, uniquely an apostle. I don't think that office is a functioning office. But 
But you, you think, you know, someone who really just call what, what's that old saying? Calls a spade a spade. I mean, just this declared, this is it. Now, in a way, and it's uh, it's an enormous challenge for us to think that way, uh, because certainly in the culture of America today, that kind of person would one be somewhat ostracized, and two, depending on what they said and where they said it, could be charged with a hate crime. So you, know, you kind of it's it's hard to see that. But in a, in another sense, that that strong declaration of prophetic truth. It may be a good thing. So uh, I have thought a lot about that, and I, I, you know, I just I haven't reached a conclusion on how to think about that exactly because uh, Jesus says in Luke sixteen, it's really, and I've uh, that's another passage I've really worked a lot on. I've thought a lot about it, and even in some areas of my life, I tried to apply it. And Jesus uses the word that word is shrewd. If you are doing my work, I want you to be shrewd. He said the sons of darkness. I'm paraphrasing the point. It's a couple of verses, but the paraphrase is this. The sons of darkness are often more shrewd than the children of light. What does he mean by that? Because when you think of the word shrewd, you don't necessarily put shrewd as one of the virtues of a Christian. Shrewd is kind of, well, that's what the corporate CEO does as he's climbing the ladder. But Jesus uses that word. And he is encouraging and he is motivating his followers to be shrewd. What does that mean? Wise. It's a dimension of wisdom. Explain that dimension of wisdom called shrewd. Jim, you were going to say something. Well, I mean, it has sort of a negative component. Very much so. And in my mind, it's somebody who's smart, maybe a little bit conniving, uh, willing to exercise, uh, maybe not the best uh, moral guidance to make the decisions, uh, but always a very aggressive and pushing and achieving. A bit manipulative, perhaps? Right. So that's how Jesus is, we should understand it. Jesus is saying, for my sake, be manipulative. For my sake, be conniving. For my sake, be controlling. I think it's insightful. Insightful. Streetwise. Streetwise. To to really assess what's going on and what their objective is and being able to counter it in in a spiritually acceptable way that delivers a message with it and also a notice, I'm on to you. Mm. But you mm. take the practice of, I mean, you take um, an attribute like wisdom. I mean, you can apply it for very evil, nasty kinds of things. Or you can take wisdom and you can apply it in mm-hmm. very positive exactly. application. And so while I think of shrewd, as maybe as it's referred to here, can move why shrewd in the ways of the world, is taking that same skill set or that same knowledge base or whatever it is and using it in a very positive way. We I think it means what if we're, if we're going to carry the message to somebody and they don't want it, you know, you could kick the dust off your sandals or whatever. It could mean that. You know, it could mean that. Don't waste your time with yep. you know, somebody could that don't want it. You know. 
I didn't mean screwed as a negative necessarily. I I I, I, I kind of see it as you know just really intelligent and and, and got it going on, you know, more or less. But too often we become safe. We always say the safe words, We're not going to offend anybody, but just always stay safe. But I think in culture, I think we need to be more direct, apply more wisdom, be more firm, coaching, teaching, and it's kind of like that hand on the shoulder, <laughs> you did it wrong. Let me tell you what you did wrong. I don't know if it's like that, but... It's what? Yeah, I think we're all saying in one way or another kind of the same thing. By and large, our first response to a word shrewd is negative. We think of it as someone who is, well, it's some of the ways Jim put it there. And when we put it in that kind of, it's kind of a negative thing. Well, I don't really want to be like that. That's certainly I don't see with Jesus. But yet, think about that for a minute. Shrewd is really, and in Fred's words, a good starting point, is an enormously uh, gifted insightfulness about things. Uh, a shrewd person is someone, uh, you're trying to put a facade on, I, I see through that. But I'm not going to bring that up necessarily, but um, I want to break that down and I'm going to I'm going to start to peel that onion back to get to the real you because you really need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to start working on some of those things. I'm going to see where your vulnerabilities are. I'm going to see where your hot buttons are. And my, my analysis, as I bring all that to the Lord, and, and my, my desire to gain insight into you, it has the objective that you're going to come to faith. Because that's what a businessman does. That's what a salesman does. A good salesman is always trying to figure out, where's your hot button? What are you really interested in? You know, I mean, you got, I mean, you guys are real estate guys. You know you're going to sell a home. You know what the wife wants to see. And you know what's really a priority with her. And so you're going to make sure, or if it isn't a particularly good part of the home, keep her out of the kitchen. That's not good. That's not nice. We're going to make that sale. Don't let her see the kitchen. I'm making this up. But it's, it's that shrewdness is... And it's in a remarkable positive because you are seeking the insight to break down the facade to get what is your real need? Where is your hot button? What's, and it takes time. The implication, the inference, really, the inference to draw from that is it takes time. And it's, you know, I, I see Paul, we're going to read this in chapter 9. I see Paul, he's like that. And he says, it's in a, in a little bit of a different context, but the same point. When I'm with Jews, I'm a Jew. And I'm talking their language. I'm focusing on the things that are important to them. I'm bringing up the issues that are right on the tip of their tongue and on the, the, just the, the very edge of everything that they focus on. When I'm with Greeks, I'm a Greek. I know their philosophy. I studied in their schools. I quote their philosophers. When I'm with a weak person, a person who has moral and, and perhaps spiritual failure, I am in there mixing up. Oh, yeah, boy, that's, I used to struggle with that intensely. When I'm with a strong, arrogant, you see, that's what I'm saying. And he says, he concludes it, I am all things to all men that I might win some. That's shrewd. 
It's not always in your face, slamming somebody over the head. Sometimes it's good. You've got to be in your face. It's like you have to know what's the... That's shrewd. And it's, it's a student of human character. It's a... You know, I've taught in higher ed almost my whole life. I mean, very rarely can a student get away with anything. And it isn't because I'm particularly brilliant. It's just... 37 years of teaching, students, all of their manipulative ways. And I'm just, I'm absolutely rigid. An assignment is due at the time the class begins in the due date. If it's one minute after, it's late. Well, you're not being gracious. Well, you can interpret it that way, but I've worked with young adults all my life, and you're following people. And if I give you grace, you will then presume in my grace. Then I give you a little more grace, you'll demand my grace. So there's no grace when it comes to assignments. Now, I, you know, and it's, you know, it's really amazing. The students say, okay. And they just hand their assignments in. Whereas, you know, it's just fallen people. Fallen people, even if they know the Lord, they start to presume upon your grace. Well, somebody that's a shrewd teacher, you can't do that, in my view. Because you know what students will do. It interrupts class, interrupts the flow of things, and all of a sudden, you're focusing on things that don't have anything to do with what's really important in the class. Jesus says, be shrewd. And how did we get on that? Because from verse 17, I don't remember how we even got on that, but uh, it was good, good discussion. But however we get on, if I was responding to a question or whatever it was, I hope you're satisfied with it. <laughs> Any other questions? Please. Just a comment. I, following up on what you just said, I, in addition to the wisdom, I, I, I've often thought about specific people who I wanted to approach. Mm. And I thought I needed to develop a strategy. Good. You know, what am I... Mm. What is my plan mm. to approach them? Mm. Mm-hmm. And right or wrong, I mean, I don't because I don't know how else to do it. I have to know them yes. and understand them and listen to them. Yes. And unless I have some kind of strategy, yeah, that's you know? a, that's a great comment. That, I think that is a dimension of of being shrewd. Absolutely, not no, it is. It's, it's, it's relevant to I, it, that. Is very, uh, very insightful, and it's absolutely spot on. Absolutely. Um, Ask a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's like mm-hmm. with uh, in, in in one sense it does, but in another sense it does apply. It's like when we raise our children. Now, I raise two, but you. It doesn't take you very long to see where how different they are. You know, even twins. I don't have twins, but how different they are. And what worked with Jonathan does not work with Joanna. And not past tense. What did work with him doesn't work, did not work with her. And that's just, so you have to, you have to, what's the strategy with her? To be shrewd in raising your children is, man, I gotta really make sure I understand that. And for those of you who are married, to be shrewd in marriages, you really, really have to understand that woman. I mean, I don't know how anybody can actually ever believe that men and women are totally, totally equal and the same. Men and women are so different. Well, anyway. Sunday night at the Bible class I teach, uh, and you know, Sunday night was one of those beastly hot evenings like we've been having. 
And I mean, I was, I was just in some ways, so, I was so warm, I was up there teaching. And I noticed by the end, it's an hour and a half session. By the end of that hour and a half session, every single woman in the crowd had put her sweater on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was just really, it was really interesting. And every man in the room is sitting with a light shirt on like this. Several of them are mopping their brow and are going like this, you know. And the women, every, there, was, there was no exception in that room. It was about 70 people. About it's half and half, mostly husband and wife. And every single gal put on her sweater. My wife had a fleece. <laughs> We, we were that night, because it starts at 6, we leave at 5.30, we're in the house. I'm, I'm changing. I had shorts and a T-shirt on because I was really warm. Peggy was sitting in the same room I was on. She had jeans and a fleece on. Isn't that just amazing? And so a shrewd husband is going to really understand his wife. She's very different from me. She's got a lot of idiosyncrasies, a lot of strange things characterize this woman. And I love her. I'm committed to her. So I'm going to seek to understand it. We are way, 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 way off 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Verse 18 through 20, because I really want to camp on 21 22. This is, this is exciting truth here. He's summing up. He's summing up what he's taught. Let no man deceive himself, and any man thinks he's wise in this age, let him become foolish. Remember that at the beginning of this discussion, chapter 1, 18? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Remember he said that in chapter 1? He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Quoting from the Old Testament. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that are useless. Psalm 94. Okay, quick review, summing up. Now I want to apply this, Paul says, in a very different way. He's going to shock us. So then... Let no one boast in men. I am of Paul. I am of Paulus. I am of Cephas. Let no man boast in men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things come. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. How does that hit you? First of all, it's, it, it, the first reading is, what in the world is he saying here to us? He is saying something about our position. As we are the new temple of the living God, being in Christ, being in Christ is what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. Adam was God's theocratic steward on planet Earth. He was God's creative cultivator. God said, everything is yours. Be a good steward in my name. Did God set any limits to what Adam could do? No, except one tree. You follow me? So Adam is God's theocratic steward. God's vice regent on planet earth you put your faith in Christ you are the new vice regents of God on planet earth and 
the little plot of ground he gives you, call that your home. You're to be a creative cultivator in his name for his glory. But remember something we learned when we were studying Romans. You are an heir because you're going to rule and reign with Christ. You, what was lost in Adam, is now restored in you. And everything is yours. You are an heir of the living God. Why is he telling us that? How does that apply to this, this he's summing up this section. God gave you Paul and Apollos and Cephas to help you grow. Don't elevate them. They're gifts. They, they, they were given to you. They're part of God's stewardship to you. Now you be a good steward. Because listen, everything is yours because everything is restored to you. And it's that future promise should govern present behavior. Everything belongs to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And that takes you back to things he said in Romans, things he says in Galatians, that in, in Jesus we are now a joint heir with the Son of God. When he comes back and sets up his kingdom, we're going to rule and reign with him. What are we going to rule and reign over? Planet Earth. Now, I don't know if that gets you. I mean, we don't get excited in this class. I mean, we don't, you know, we're not Pentecostals and we don't show enthusiasm. But that's the kind of thing that you need to let that drill deep down into your heart because that's your position. That's who you are. And it's like Paul is saying, now, look, here's who you are. Stop focusing on these silly little things like, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Knock it off. That's just a tiny little insignificant, stupid little faction. What you should be thinking about is you're going to rule and reign with the Son of God, the Lord and Creator of the universe. That's your destiny. That's who you are. What are you allowing these little stupid disagreement things to... What are you doing that for? It's like what we say to a child. You know, stop. You're six. Well, that's not a great example because that's a terrible example. You're, you're 17. It's your son. You're an adult. Start acting like an adult. I don't know if you've ever said that to your I don't know if you should say that to your son. But, you know, they're acting like a six-year-old and they're 17 or 18. Start acting. Start living who you are. Paul is saying start living who you are. Stop these little factional, stupid little disagreements. Now that is, I'm paraphrasing his point because he's taking this immensely positive set of truths to motivate them to stop these little silly quarrel, division, schism things that are harming their unity and harming their witness. Do you see what he's doing? And that what he's taught us in, in 16 and following and in 21, 22, and 23, those two truths apply to you and apply to me. We are part of the temple of the living God. And our destiny is to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus because all things belong to us. What was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. And that's something to get kind of excited about. Got it? When I say you got it, I mean, do you understand it? Because it really does, it really does apply to us today. 
The Apostle Paul is trying to get the people of Corinth and to get us, by extension, focus on these grand themes of who you are, which makes some of these little things that we're focusing on kind of insignificant. Focus on your position. Not always the struggle of the process. The process is real. It's, it's real. But keep coming back to your position. I am of immense significance to God. I'm part of his temple. I'm his heir. Everything belongs to me. And I'm going to rule and reign with him over it. Oh my goodness. Why am I focusing on a disagreement with Fred over whether he's a good teacher or I'm a good teacher? <laughs> that's, that's a stupid thing to focus on. I just made that up, but you know what I mean. That's a dumb thing to focus on. He's going he's to keep bringing this up. You're going to see in, the, in three chapters, uh, or two chapters, they're suing each other. They're taking each other to civil law court and suing the pants off each other. And Paul says, knock that off. What a horrible witness that is, where Christian is suing Christian. Don't you know that when you take that to a pagan court and pagans settle the dispute, not other believers, that's a horrible witness for what you represent in Christ. Because don't you know, well, we're not qualified. You're not qualified to settle disputes among believers? Now, this isn't criminal. This is a civil, like property dispute don't you know, he says, that you are going to have ruling authority over the angels? Don't tell me you can't settle this little dispute. See what he's doing? Future promise, future destiny should help you settle present behavior issues. Oh, that's a great thing to motivate us. And that's what he's doing here. Now, I just looked at this God on my wrist, and it's time for us to bring it to a conclusion. I, did, I, I didn't think I was going to be able to get this one. I knew it was going to be late. But we got this done to the glory of God. So walk out of here excited about your position. You're part of the new temple of the living God, and you are going to rule and reign. You have authority over everything. So stop some of these little squabbles that may or may not be a part of your life. Lord, we thank you for the truths of this really quite magnificent paragraph of thought. Uh, what a great reminder. And in many, perhaps with some of the guys around this table, it's the first time they've ever heard that truth, that they are part of the temple of the living God and all that that means that we talked about. But also that they're an heir of the living God. They're going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus in the coming kingdom. And that means all things belong to us because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That relationship of the Trinity is now a characteristic of us. It's the amazing, profound, life-changing truths. This is our position. This is who we are. Help us to live that way to your glory and honor. Be with these men. I know they're so busy. They have so many responsibilities. So much that's tense and and stress-filled. Give them your peace. Give them your enablement. Help them to live uh, with the sight and focus and emphasis even of who they are in Christ. So that the practice of their lives is beginning to narrow that gap with their position in Christ. Uh, Motivate them in all of these areas and help them as you help me as well to represent you well. 
We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. See you next week.